0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoZillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 6, 2022, and this is show number 913. Welcome to the podcast where we're not going to talk about a billionaire making everyone angry, we're not going to talk about politics, we're not going to talk about the economy, and instead, we're just going to talk tech all the time. Last week, I entirely forgot that I did two chitchats across the pond. I told you about number seven hundred forty nine, but I forgot to tell you about seven hundred forty eight. In this episode, I am pleased to introduce you to Darcy Hegarty on Chit Chat Across the Pond. Darcy is a fellow screencaster for Don McAllister Screencasts Online, and I'm really impressed with the videos he creates. They're tight, they tell a coherent story, and he even starts with a problem to be solved. I started chatting with him about his process and discovered he's only been doing this for a very short while. He just learned how to do it. I also found out that he has a far different process for creating his screencast than I do, so I asked him to come on the show so he could teach me how he does it, and you get to learn along with me. I really enjoyed talking to him. He's got a great sense of humor, really fun guy, and I'm going to try to do his method. If it works as well as he says, it might cut down the time it takes me to do screencasting by a lot. So I'm super excited to learn from Darcy. You can find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond light in your podcatcher of choice, or look for Chit Chat Across the Pond number 748, Darcy Hegarty, on his unusual screencasting process in the show notes. A few weeks ago, I told you that I'd made the decision to buy a second Synology. My plan was to back up the new Synology DS-1522 Plus to the only slightly older DS-1019 Plus and decommission my Drobo 5N2. Drobo appeared to be frozen in time after going into Chapter 11 restructuring. They haven't had any new products for sale for quite some time. In a rare sign of life, they sent out a notice to their customers telling them that they make no promises that Drobo Dashboard would work under macOS Ventura. Well, I've learned a lot in the last few weeks, and I'm certainly not done learning. One interesting tidbit is that Drobo Dashboard does work under macOS Ventura. While I don't regret my decision to move forward with the new Synology, it does mean I could take my time with the Synologies and erase the data on the Drobos at my leisure. When last we left our hero, she had purchased the new Synology and was waiting for the last of the 12 terabyte drives to arrive. As you may recall, I bought the same drive from three different vendors, so I'd have the best chance that they weren't from the same lot. In theory, they would be less likely to all fail at the same time as a result. Imagine my dismay when two of them from two different suppliers were still from the same lot. Oh well, I tried. So here's the goals of what I'm going to try to do here. I want to migrate all my existing data, services, and user accounts from the old Synology to the new Synology. I wanna make the new Synology the authoritative source of the data. I'd like to figure out a way to back up the new Synology to the old Synology. Now my big picture end goal will be to have the old Synology at our buddy Ron's house. So that's gonna be part of the trade study in deciding on a backup strategy between the two devices. It seems I should be able to start the backup for, I should not have to start the backup from scratch since the old Synology should already have all of the files that are on the new Synology because I will have just copied them over. I'm going to test using rsync to use the backup between the machines, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. I'm going to trade off rsync versus Synology Hyper Backup software. Now, Hyper Backup creates an encrypted backup, which is swell, but it's harder to navigate the files. So, I'm going to start with rsync, and if that works, that's probably what I'll do. If both Rsync and Hyperbackup have unresolvable problems, I will have to go back to using Carbon Copy Cloner on our Mac Mini, which I think constrains me to keeping both Synologies under the same roof. But maybe not. Anyway, my first step was to procrastinate getting started. <laughs> That's not at all like me. I normally can't wait to open my new play- my new toys and play with them. But this particular task was terrifying. I was about to migrate a massive amount of data. I shouldn't have been terrified since it already also exists on my Drobo, but you know, I was still nervous. I also had a short vacation coming up and I didn't want to get caught halfway done doing the migration before I left. After we returned from our short trip, I finally opened the new Synology and I populated it with drives. And that's when I realized that two Synologies are wider than a Synology and a Drobo, so they wouldn't fit side by side in my cabinet. That gave me an excuse to procrastinate a little bit longer. I did some research on whether it's a problem to stack Synologies, including posting to the MacGeekGabs Discord, where they have a dedicated Synology channel. The consensus was that it wouldn't be a problem as long as things didn't get hot. I've mentioned it before, but I rely a lot on Steven Goetz when I'm working with Synology, and he has earned his pay in the last couple of weeks he finally convinced me to hit the button to start Migration Assistant. Now, you've heard that term before, Migration Assistant on the Mac. This is Synology's Migration Assistant. So I was ready to go. But first, I watched a video made by Synology showing me how to prepare for and run Migration Assistant. I watched it twice. The second time, I took notes. And then I read the entire tutorial on Migration Assistant on the Synology website, and I took more notes. It's a good thing that I did. I finally fired up the new Synology, and then I remembered you have to install the operating system on a new Synology before you can do anything. Now, it's not obvious how you install an operating system on a device device that doesn't already have one. How do you talk to it? Well, if you go to find.synology.com in the web browser of a network that contains any Synologies, it launches the Synology Web Assistant, and it displays the details about all of the ones that it finds. You can see the server name, IP address, model, and more. I'm not entirely sure how it does this, but the bare, the bare metal Synology must have some sort of web server or something that serves up this information. The web interface walks you through how to install the operating system and how to configure what's called the storage pool for the drives you've installed. I'm not really sure why you'd want, why you'd want to create different storage pools, but following Stephen Getz's advice, I created one giant 21.8 terabyte storage pool using the three 12 terabyte drives I'd installed. We're not going to go through the math again, don't be afraid, I'm not even going to talk about why that isn't 3 times 12, it's a different number. All right. once the storage pool is set up, you're prompted to create an admin user account on the new Synology. But keep in mind, Migration Assistant will be blowing all of this away later. Now, on the Mac, when you run Migration Assistant, you pull the data into the destination machine from the source machine. But with Synology's Migration Assistant, it's actually the other way around. You push the data from the source machine to the destination machine. Now that didn't cause any issues, but it did surprise me and it's one of the things I learned by watching the video twice and reading uh, the tutorial. After much hand-wringing, I finally started up Migration Assistant on the old Synology. I'm delighted to report that it works exactly as advertised. Even though I had 13 terabytes of data to to transfer, that number sounds small. My notes say 13, but I think it was 18. Anyway, I had this massive amount of data to transfer over my network. It took two days, seven hours, and 31 minutes. While I was doing that, though, my my old Synology was fully usable all throughout the time that the transfer was happening. When the process was complete, the old Synology asked to be rebooted. As soon as it came back up, the two Synologies switched roles. The old Synology became in kind of a dormant state, not advertising any services. The new Synology was running most of the services that had been running on the old one. There were a few that they identified. They said, yeah, you're going to have to fire these back up on your own. Anyway, our user accounts were migrated to the new Synology, and in all ways, it just felt like the old one. So one of the first things I did was change the background image and the login image of the new Synology to match, to look like something new and space-age looking so I could tell which one was which when I was in the web interface for the two devices. It would be so easy to bork things up by confusion over which one was which if I hadn't done that. Well, it was kind of anticlimactic to have the migration work so well, but... Anticlimactic in the best possible way, right? It was time to take a swing at learning how to use the time honored library rsync to back up files from the new to the old Synology. But first, I needed to choose a unique name for my new Synology. When I got my first Synology, we were in the middle of rewatching Star Trek Deep Space Nine. One of my favorite characters is the recalcitrant shapeshifter Odo. I cleverly combined Synology with Odo and I named my first machine Synodo. To choose a name for the new Synology, I looked up words that start with S-Y-N and found the free dictionary, which lists them in piles by how many letters are in the words. I know, this is really important to how Synologies work, right? I don't know, I thought this was fun. Well, I clearly didn't want to type a 15-letter word, so I didn't use those, even though I would use text expander most of the time to type it. I started with shorter words. I wanted something easy to type, easy to say out loud, and felt kind of fun. I settled on the name Syntax for my new Synology. On networked attached storage devices, you create shares, which are essentially, I'm going to call them like volumes that are shared with various users. In Synology lingo, they call them shared folders. In my previous backup strategy, where I backed up my Synology shared folders to the Drobo, Carbon Copy Cloners saw them as volumes. I wanted to always be sure which machine I was looking at, so I prefixed every shared folder on the Synology with Synodo Dash. On the Drobo 5n2, the shares were prefixed with 5n2 This made it very clear when setting it up or modifying the backups that I didn't accidentally push old data onto new data. If a shared folder was mounted, you were certain which NAS contained it. Well, after Migration Assistant did its job to move all the data to the new Synology, I now had two servers on the network, both with shared folders prefixed with Synodo-. dash. Now ideally, I'd have the shared folders on syntax, prefixed with syntax dash. I started changing the names of my shared folders, starting with the obvious choice, my delete me folder. Everybody has a delete me folder, right? That's the one you play with, the one where you put things that future you will know I'm allowed to delete whatever's in here. So once I worked on that, I had a syntax delete me and a synodo delete me as volumes on the same network. This was the perfect shared folder for learning to use RSync. My preferred choice for backing up from one Synology to the other was rSync. Now this protocol has been around for a zillion years. Its initial release was in 1996. So I figured after 25 years of use in the Unix and Linux world, it's probably pretty solid. I think it's the underpinnings for a lot of uh, different tools that do synchronization of of, uh, files. So just like with Migration Assistant, you start by enabling the rSync service on the destination machine. I'd expect it to be getting down and dirty with a command line to run rsync, but Synology has it built right into its file services control panel and it's actually pretty easy. Once enabled, you add a user account to be allowed to perform the service. Now over on the source machine, in the same file services control panel, you also enable the rsync service. From the source machine, you choose the sync destination from a drop-down list of local machines with the rsync service enabled. Pretty good. Like any good syncing service, you have options on how often to sync. Remember, this is not a a traditional backup with versioning. It's a real sync operation that will sync all changes and deletions. I was going to have it run once an hour, but Stephen Getz suggested maybe you want to do it once a day. That might be more logical because that could potentially save myself from some disastrous human error if I was quick enough. While enabling rsync services on the two machines was obvious, telling rsync what shared folders to sync and how often, it was not that obvious because it wasn't on the rsync tab of file services. Instead, for some reason they're buried in the advanced tab under the unintuitive title Server Status Task List. And it, it actually scrolls off the bottom of the window. You have to embiggen the window, the default window size to be able to even see it. Anyway, once I sleuthed that out, I enabled syncing of my syntax delete me folder and I ran a manual sync. And then things went horribly wrong. <laughs> this is when I realized there's a big side effect of changing the name of my shared folder. And you've probably guessed what happened. On the old Synology, I now had two shared folders one called Synodo delete me and a new one called syntax delete me. Unlike running Carbon Copy Cloner, when I can copy to a shared folder with a different name, it appears both shared folders have to have the same name before I start. All right. Good thing I started with a small folder. I deleted Synodo Delete Me, uh, the shared folder of Synodo Delete Me on the old Synology. I put a new file in Syntax Delete Me and I ran rsync again. So now the new file showed up on the old Synology in the blink of an eye. It's working perfectly. I've got two folders, same name, syncs from one to the other. It worked great. Now, if I'd been smarter, I would have chosen my next smallest shared folder for the second test, but I did not. Without checking the size of the shared folders first, I chose the one where I back up all of the podcast data, thinking, I don't know, I I didn't think it was that much data. Turned out to be six terabytes. So here's what I did. I changed its name on both machines to the new prefix. So I've got a I've got a shared folder on both. The data is the same between the two, but I'm just going to run the sync operation. It shouldn't be a big deal. So they, they are both called syntax dash and then the name of this shared folder. So I told it to run a manual sync. The manual sync, instead of syncing between the two shares, it created a second shared folder on the old Synology and it tried to sync all six terabytes of data to it. The old Synology ran out of disk space and was 100% full when four of the six terabytes had copied over. My Synology, in the terms that John F. Braun likes to say, was completely wedged. I'm still not sure how I ended up with duplicate shared folders, or I wasn't at this point in the story, on the old Synology. I figured user error was the most obvious answer. I wondered whether I didn't really change the name to match my new naming structure. I looked back and I had detailed notes though and screenshots on how I had changed the names of the shared folders first. So I I knew I did what I thought I meant to do. But at this point, my task was to figure out how do I unwedge the old Synology? I deleted that shared folder with a four terabyte partial duplicate of my files, but oddly no space was reclaimed. It was still 100% full. I rebooted the old Synology, and still it was 100% full. Steven suggested I use Storage Manager to run data scrubbing. It ran for about 12 hours, and it did not fix the problem. My Synology was still wedged. The only solution I had left was to delete the perfectly good 6 terabyte shared folder as well. Now remember, I have a copy of it on the new Synology, and I still have the files on the Drobo, but I was hoping to have a process where I didn't have to start over replicating all of the data onto the old Synology, because it's already there! That's when things got super weird. Remember that after I deleted the four terabyte partial duplicate, I didn't regain any space. When I deleted the six terabyte original, I regained five terabytes of space. At this point, I should have harvested like nine or ten terabytes of space, right? I, I don't understand why it was why it was only five terabytes. Well, I went back to the Synology fanatics on the Discord server for Mac Geekab, where Bi- Brian Monroe had a great suggestion. He thought maybe you enabled snapshots at some point, and that was what was chewing up all the space. Dave Hamilton chimed in as well to agree with Brian that snapshots were the culprit. Well, I would have been delighted to hunt down and delete any snapshots I could find, but all of the instructions in Synology's help files on the topic of doing anything with a snapshot starts with, select the shared folder and... Well, I can't very well select a shared folder because I've already deleted them, right? spent about three days on and off working on the problem, and I decided the only logical recourse at that point was to wipe the old Synology clean and start running rSync from scratch to replicate my 18 terabytes of data across my network yet again. Okay. took me a day or so more to get my nerve up, but I finally pushed the button on the old Synology to do a factory reset and erase all data. The button was red and it was very scary, but I pushed it. I checked like 86 times to make sure I was deleting the old one, because remember, it doesn't have as much data on it now because that other folder's gone. Well, I've always said that you learn a lot more when things go wrong than when they work the way you expect it. Going through setting up the old Synology from scratch just a week after setting up the new one before, it really helped me cement the process that you go through to do it. I was so confident in how to do it that I actually installed the Synology operating system from my iPad while watching TV. The operating system is called Disk Station Manager, or DSM for short. I installed DSM-7. I already knew how to create accounts, I turned on two-factor authentication again, I got ready to rsync my little heart out. I started by creating my syntax-delete-me folder on the, two, on the old Synology, and I started rsync from the old to the new. And guess what happened? I ended up with two versions of syntax-delete-me, one of which had our underscore one appended to the name. I couldn't believe it. Remember, I said the obvious answer had to be operator trouble, but I couldn't see how. Well, I went back through the process to start up rsync on a specific shared folder, and I more carefully read the checkbox that I did read before, so when you're selecting the sources to sync, there's a checkbox, and you have to read it. Now, like I said, in my defense, I did read it the first time, but I didn't clearly understand what it was trying to tell me until that moment. The checkbox asks you to agree to this sentence. I understand if the selected destination contains folders with identical names as source folders, the folders at the destination will be renamed. If they don't exist at the destination, they will be created. Well, to say I felt a bit silly is an understatement. It essentially said, right there, I'm going to duplicate it. I'm going to rename that one. I'm going to give you another one. Now, I also understand there are probably quite a few folks listening or reading along who've been shouting into their devices this whole time and now they can finally relax because they already knew how to run rsync and they knew this was going to happen. But I finally figured it out on my own. I am glad that it wasn't my fault for just changing the name. While changing the names to match gave me two identically named folders, I still would have had a duplicate folder that would have wedged my machine. Armed with a real understanding of how this works, I deleted all shared folders on the old Synology, deleted all our sync tasks on the new Synology, and I started creating new ones. Syntax delete me synced over perfectly. One copy on both machines, and any changes I made were reflected on both. The next experiment was on a small shared folder this time, taking up only 5 gigabytes of storage. After the Rsync succeeded, I compared the two shared folders side by side. Both had 5.09 gigabytes as I expected. But the new Synology had 951 files, while the one I synced to to the old one had 184. Well, that made no sense. The folders the same size. How could they have a different number of files? I went through the folders one by one and I could not account for what was missing. And then I noticed that the new Synology has a recycle bin. I opened it up and it had 767 files in it, which is exactly the difference in the number of files between the two Synologies. I was so happy and I learned something else new. rsync ignores the recycle bin. Now, I'm confident that I knew what I was doing. So at this point, I ran all of the other folders one by one. I didn't do two at once, no matter how big or how small they were, and it took several days to complete. But by the time I got done, everything synced over perfectly. Now, the story isn't over yet with the great migration of the Synologies of 2022, but I'm going to cut myself off there. I have a really good idea, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on how I'm going to do our sync to our buddy Ron's house. The bottom line for this chapter is that Synology has really thought out this migration assistance stuff, and as long as you don't try to be smart and read the relatively clear instructions, it is not a painful process at all. Well, next up, producer Steve Sheridan would like to jump in here to give a review of a really cool service.
1: We've all experienced the failure of a home electronics device at one time or another. Often, it's not worth the repair cost or the device just cannot be repaired. But sometimes, there is an option to fix your failed device. When our original HomePod failed only after about three or four years of use, we just assumed that Apple would be able to repair this $349 item. After all, Apple has an excellent repair program, even for many items not under warranty. But alas, Apple abandoned the original HomePod for repairs, even though many, many owners have experienced failures. This was quite disappointing since we really liked the HomePod's sound quality and its integration with Siri, HomeKit, and AirPlay. I kept our HomePod sitting on a shelf for a few years, hoping that someday I'd work up the gumption to repair it. That day never came. Then, while listening to an episode of the Accidental Tech podcast, Allison heard Marco Arment talk about a guy named Nick who repairs original HomePods. After checking out Nick's well-designed repair website, I decided to take the plunge and send our HomePod to him for repair. I'm pleased to report that after a few short days we now have our original HomePod back and functional. The repair process was so smooth and painless I felt compelled to pass on my positive experience to others who may have had similar failures of their original HomePods. There are a few features of Nick's repair service that set it above others. His repairs are very fast inexpensive, and you get real-time feedback on your HomePod's repair status. Nick's HomePod repair website includes detailed descriptions of all the common HomePod failure modes, and there are several. Nick can repair most HomePod failures, but not all. For each failure mode, Nick describes the symptoms the user would see, the diagnosis corresponding to that failure, the repair, and even the root cause for the failure if known. The symptoms are described plainly, in a way that someone without any electronics experience can understand. In the event you have a failed HomePod and might be interested in whether it can be repaired, the following is a list of the common HomePod failure symptoms that Nick can almost always fix. Starting with no power, and this is the failure our HomePod exhibited, probably the most common. Also, popping, clicking, and what he calls death farts and crackling. Uh, No bass and or fast clicking. Just no bass, just no sound, and finally rattling sound and or touch display issues. The failure mode that Nick does not have a fix for is flashing volume lights and boot loops. If you send in your HomePod and in the rare case Nick can't fix it, you don't pay anything except shipping. On his website, Nick also provides descriptions of how to diagnose the different failures, photos of the failure location within the HomePod and the devices that need to be fixed or replaced, and high-quality videos of the repair process. So if you choose, you could try repairing your HomePod yourself. Nick even provides links to order parts that may need to be replaced. If you unsuccessfully tried repairing your HomePod yourself, Nick gives instructions on how to handle situations such as, Help! I took my HomePod apart and now there's no sound or power. Or, I did my own repairs and lost, blank, part. What is it? Most of the repairs Nick performs cost just $60, with a few of them going up to $80. Since our HomePod fell in the no power category, I was encouraged Nick could repair it. For a mere $60, it was well worth sending in our HomePod to try out his service. Nick provides detailed instructions on how to pack and ship your HomePod to him and gives some suggested inexpensive shipping services. Fortunately, we still had the original HomePod box, so our packing was straightforward. Nick suggested using a service called Pirate Ship to find the least expensive way to ship the HomePod. Using this service, I found that UPS Ground cost only $10 to ship our HomePod to Nick. We live in Southern California, and Nick is up in Washington, so the shipping time was about three days. As soon as Nick received a HomePod, he sent me a confirmation email that he'd received it and let me know he would be repairing it the same day. One of the coolest things about Nick's repair service is that he live streams the video of him repairing every HomePod he receives. Usually, he has a queue of HomePods lined up for repair, in my case it was five, and he gives you an approximate time at which your HomePod will be repaired. So you can see in real time as he opens up your baby, finds the problem, and fixes it. By the time the video is done, you've seen your HomePod is up and running again. I have to say it was a joy seeing how efficiently Nick disassembled, diagnosed, repaired, and reassembled our HomePod. I've included a link to the video showing Nick repairing our HomePod. If you watch the video, you'll see the failure of our HomePod happened to be the most common of all HomePod failures, a shorted Schottky barrier diode that prevents the HomePod from receiving full power. As a result, our homepot had no lights or response. According to Nick, it's possible this diode is just not suited for the task or Apple received a bad batch of diodes since this failure mode is so frequent. Although I'm not a technician, I am an electrical engineer and I have some experience with soldering and electrical components. However, while watching Nick do his work, I was convinced I made the right decision not to do the job myself. He has the right tools and skills to do the repair very quickly and effectively. It would have taken me five or six times longer if I could have done the repair at all. As an added bonus, Nick gives a running commentary about the shape of your HomePod and any unusual features he sees, in addition to a description of its failure diagnosis and repair. For example, Nick noticed the mesh surrounding our HomePod was slightly deformed by the power cord being pressed into it during shipping. He expertly rubbed the mesh around the depression and smoothed out the deformation. When Nick completed the repair, he sent me another email to confirm the repair was done, firm up the final price, and request which shipping method I wanted him to use for the return. I chose UPS Ground again for another $10. He sent me a final email with the UPS tracking number, and in three days I had my home pod back in my hands. I plugged it in and immediately it came up and was working just like I saw in the video. It pleases Allison and me so much that we can again enjoy the quality sound this thing puts out. Nick's HomePod repair service is offered to anyone in the world, but shipping can be expensive if you're outside the U.S. So Nick provides a list of people who also offer HomePod repairs in three countries outside the U.S. They are the U.K., France, and Denmark. To top it all off, Nick guarantees the parts and labor for his repairs for six months. If you have an original HomePod that isn't working and you'd like to get it working again, I highly recommend Nick's HomePod repair service. He's fast, inexpensive, and transparent with his work. I wish more repair services handled their business as Nick does. Are you listening, Apple?
0: Thanks, Steve, for that. You make a really good point about Apple. Like, why, if it only cost 60 bucks. It's that easy to fix that this guy can do it. I mean, he's highly skilled, obviously, and he's got it down pat. But why couldn't Apple fix those? I mean, it's really strange that they didn't have a repair program on these. And it really is great to have that big HomePod back. And now we can uh, redistribute one of the little HomePod minis that we've been using. Uh, but I got to say, one of my things I was most excited about was this uh, site that he found um Uh, pirate ship that actually helps you find the best price for shipping because this thing weighed a lot. This was really heavy and it was only 10 bucks. I've shipped far lighter things and bigger and smaller things for more money than what that cost. So overall, it was really fun and Steve got such a kick out of it and he's glad he didn't try to do it himself. Across the globe, inflation is making it hard for people to feed their families. Fuel costs because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine has made it significantly harder for people to drive their cars and heat their homes. If you're feeling the pinch of global economic problems and you're a patron of the PodFeed podcast, I would like you to pause your donations. I'm I'm absolutely serious about this. Patreon and PayPal donations are how I mostly cover the cost of running the podcast, and I think it makes sense that the gift of my time doesn't also cost me real money. But I don't need the money to feed my family or pay for electricity to drive my car and heat my home. If you're in this situation, please go to podfeet.com slash Patreon and pause your donations or even cancel them if you have to. I don't pay any attention to who stops supporting the show because I don't need to know. There are a lot of ways to contribute to the show other than monetarily. You can join our community discussions at podfeet.com slash Slack and help answer questions or post goofy stuff in the Delete Me channel like Alistair does. You can do reviews for the show like Steve did. You can tell your friends and family and coworkers and strangers on the street about the podcast. You can come to the live show and make new friends. These methods don't pay the bills, but they're actually more important to me than money. Start today by sending me a paragraph or two about something you're still using after many years. Send it to me in an email with the title, I'm still using it, and I'll do the work of reading it out loud for you on a future show. Whatever you do, please do what's right for you and your family. I'd like to tell you about a magical application slash service that solves a problem most of us have. I'm using it to solve a problem that is perhaps off the beaten path, but still within the realm of a nocilla castaway. The mainstream problem to be solved is that you're away from home and you want to access some data that's on your network at home. The more advanced problem I'm trying to solve is what I talked about earlier— I want to get my new Synology network-attached storage to do rsync over the internet to my old Synology that'll be living at Ron's house a mile and a half away. The third problem that could be solved would be how to easily screen share into your loved one's computer across the internet without them having to do any work to initialize it. The solution to all of these problems is a free service called TailScale, T A I L S C A L E from TailScale.com. Tailscale at its core is a virtual private network mesh based on the WireGuard communications protocol. WireGuard is an open source protocol that's at the heart of many VPNs and one of the options in my current VPN, Private Internet Access. There's, of course, a link to my referral link in the show notes. Anyway, you're wondering at this moment why I'm recommending a VPN called Tailscale when I just said that PIA is my current VPN. These two applications solve very different problems and yet overlap in some ways. A traditional VPN like PIA is designed to allow you to protect your traffic from prying eyes but routing all of that traffic through a hosted VPN server. You can obfuscate your country of origin and also obfuscate what data you're transmitting and receiving. Tailscale provides a virtual private network of a completely different sort. Let me explain by example. Let's say you have a desktop Mac at home and use an iPad or even just an iPhone when you're on vacation. If you install Tailscale on both the Mac and iOS device, the two devices will be made part of a virtual private network without routing traffic through a third-party server. They talk directly to each other. Now, I entitled this article, Tailscale is Magical, because that's how it feels. It is magically easy to set up. Now that I've got your attention, let's talk about the TailScale business model, because I keep saying it's free. we got to check that out. And after that, we'll walk through how you install TailScale and how you access different devices across the network. So in terms of pricing, TailScale follows the freemium model. For free, you can, as an individual user, use TailScale to connect 20 devices on a virtual private network. If you have a small team of people who need access to the same devices over the internet, for $5 per user per month, you can get five devices per user. Bigger teams can get 10 devices per user for $15 per user per month, and enterprises can get even more. I put a link to the pricing guidelines in the show notes. Now, the number of devices isn't the only distinction between the plans. As you work up into the paid plans, you can use access control lists and other integrations that are pretty much beyond the scope of this discussion. Now that we know they don't follow the Freepy model, which is a term coined by Bart to describe free services that then sell your data, let's get into the fun part of running TailScale. TailScale is cross-platform in the most complete sense. They have clients for macOS, iOS, Windows, Linux, and Android. Yes, everyone gets to play. macOS and iOS clients are in the respective app stores, Android users can scan a barcode from the TailScale website, Windows users download from the web, and Linux is installed using the curl command. You can also install TailScale on a Synology from the package center, which is kind of like an app store except everything I've ever seen in there has been free. When you first launch TailScale on the Mac, it'll ask you for permission to allow VPN configurations. That's very standard. Next, TailScale will then ask permission to add its specific VPN configuration. You'll be prompted through the Tailscale website to log in. You can choose a Google login, Microsoft, or GitHub. After the installation, you'll be shown your admin console in a web interface where you can see your Mac listed as being part of the VPN mesh. Well, the real fun begins when you add a second device to Tailscale. Without more devices, your device is just kind of sitting on this isolated island with no one to talk to. Let's take a look at iPad and iOS. Installation on an iPhone or iPad is just as simple. You download TailScale from the App Store, and the first time you open it, it asks to install the VPN configuration profile just like it did on the Mac. After authenticating to TailScale with your account the way you set it up, you also have to get put in the passcode to your iOS device. Now things get exciting. TailScale on iOS shows you a list of devices that are part of your little VPN mesh, For each device, you can see the IP address that has been assigned by the VPN. Now, my home network is the classic 192.168.whatever, but I can see all of my devices, their IPs, all start with 100. All of the devices in the VPN mesh created by Tailscale are actually living on two networks simultaneously. When you're away from home, the devices on the VPN mesh will still be able to talk to each other, even though you're on a completely different network but we'll get how to do that shortly. We'll get into that. I got to take a sidestep here to tell you about one of my favorite things about TailScale. It creates what's called magic DNS. To refresh everyone's memory, DNS stands for the domain name system. And at its most basic level, it's what lets you type podfeed.com into your browser instead of my server's IP address 172.67.199.198. So Magic DNS from Tailscale creates a mapping like that between the name of your device and the IP address Tailscale has given to that device. For example, my MacBook Pro is called almax in system preferences sharing computer name. Tailscale's Magic DNS has created an entry called al-max to be a specific IP on my VPN mesh network. That means I can talk to it as al-max. Now you're probably asking, why would you care about this Magic DNS thing? Well, for one thing, the list of devices in the TailScale app has the real names and IPs, so it's super easy to see which device is which. But again, why do you need this at all? Well, if you ever need to connect to one of your devices via its IP address, now you don't need to remember the number. You can just remember its name. Now, I haven't talked about how to install TailScale on a Synology, but it's just as easy as it is on a Mac. You install the package, you open it, you authenticate, and now Synology is on the TailScale VPN mesh network. My Synology's name is Syntax, as I told you e- earlier, so now I can access the web interface of my Synology by simply typing syntax into the URL bar. First time you do it, you got to type HTTP colon slash slash syntax, but after that, it's just simply syntax, and you go right in. That's pretty dang cool. All right, so how would this be helpful to an iPad or an iPhone user in the real world? Let's say you're on a beach in the Seychelles, having closed a deal to buy a house right before you left on vacation but you get a frantic text from your realtor telling you you forgot to email or one last critical piece of information. Unfortunately, the file is on your desktop at home and all you have with you is your iOS device. No problem at all. Your iPhone or iPad are both on the Tailscale Mesh Network and so is your Mac. Open the Files app on your iOS device and when you're in Browse, there's a three-dot menu in the upper right. In that menu is an option to connect to server. Simply type the magic DNS name of your Mac. You'll be asked to authenticate to your Mac with your normal login, and you can navigate just like you're in the Finder of your Mac using the Files app. Seriously, it's magical. I love this. Well, the next time you need to go to your Mac from your iOS device, your Mac will already be in the list of servers, so you can connect to it and your credentials will already be stored. Oh, I miss that part. I'm sorry, when you go to, your, uh, go to your Mac, you do have to log into your Mac. All right, let's say you're a bit nerdier like yours truly, and you do carry your laptop along on vacations. With Tailscale installed on your desktop Mac, you can access all of your Macs on the home Mac right from the Finder on your traveling Mac. Well, on a different network, you don't see them in the left sidebar of the Finder window like you do when you're at home. Instead, using uh, the menu uh, in the Finder, Go Connect to Server, you just type in the magic DNS name. All of your files are there. Now, here's another cool thing you can do with TailScale. Let's say you do tech support for a family member or friend. If they give you permission to run TailScale on their computer, you can connect into their Mac using the built-in screen share app using just their device's magic DNS name. Heck, you can screen share into your own Macs if they're in TailScale. I've been doing that ever since I got it. Now, remember Ed Tobias' story about his relative who almost lost a lot of money when she got scammed into giving a bad actor access to her Mac? Well, I talked to Ed about whether maybe Tailscale would help her and wouldn't leave her vulnerable. He looked at it and he pointed out that if the scammer knew to ask if she was running Tailscale, you know, simply by describing the icon in the menu bar, they would be able to get her to open the admin console. And from there, Tailscale allows you to share the connection to another Tailscale user. Now, I said it seemed to me that the developers of Tailscale would have thought about this potential attack vector. and Indeed, they have. Remember I said that you can pay for accounts and you get more privileges? If you pay at $5 a month for you and another user, you each have to pay $5 a month, then you have the ability to enable access controls. You can create users who do not have admin rights and therefore do not have the ability to open the admin console and grant access to anyone else. Now in Ed's case, his, his relative lives only 20 minutes away and he's often over there anyway, so it wouldn't be worth $10 a month for him, 5 for each of them. But if you have remote users you need to help that are farther away, or you need a relatively inexpensive way to help clients maybe, a paid Tailscale account might be something to consider. Now, while Ed and I were chatting, he was talking about a web server he runs on a Raspberry Pi that he keeps isolated on his guest network. He can install Tailscale on the Raspberry Pi and on his Mac, and now he'll have easy access to it as it will be on his own virtual private network, and yet it can't get access to his other devices. Now, one question I had with TailScale was how the use of TailScale might affect my regular VPN software, PIA. Would I no longer need PIA? Would the two VPNs conflict with each other? Maybe I'd have to flip between the two depending on what I was trying to accomplish. Now, Unless I have a fundamental misunderstanding, which is altogether possible, you will run into problems if you try to run another VPN alongside TailScale. I ran some tests to see what would happen. On my Mac, I joined my guest network and turned on PIA while still running TailScale. I made sure to enable split tunneling in PIA, and that's the technology that allows you to see inside your local network at the same time. I thought perhaps that would allow me to see my TailScale network while being on the VPN from PIA, but it didn't work. I tried the same thing on my iPad, but in Settings VPN, it just toggled between the two VPNs. You could run one or the other, but you could not simultaneously run both TailScale and PIA. And while doing internet-y things on a Wi-Fi network I don't trust, I'll continue to run my normal VPN PIA. When I need to connect to my, homework, uh, my home network, I should say, I'll disable PIA and enable TailScale. I know the traffic to my home will be protected from prying eyes while I use TailScale. There are a few easy ways to get more information and maybe tailor your use of TailScale. On the Mac, TailScale installs a menu bar app. In the dropdown, you can see your own device's Tailscale IP, and you can see the magic DNS names of all of your other Tailscale enabled devices. If you select one of the ones in the list, it automatically copies the IP address to your clipboard. From the Tailscale menu, you can also select your login name, and from there, open the admin console. This is a web page I mentioned right after I explained how to install the app. In the Admin Console, and again, this is where you could go wrong if you had the wrong people having access to the Admin Console, the Machines tab shows you in a nice table all of the machines you have in TailScale, along with their IP addresses, the OS they are running, the version of TailScale they are running, and if the version of TailScale is out of date on those devices, you'll get a warning to upgrade. I know, because I saw it once. Anyway, you can also see when that machine was last connected. The admin console has a lot of features and most of them are beyond my skill set this early after learning to use it. I highly encourage you to poke around in the tabs of this interface if you want to learn more about what you could do with TailScale. Now the one item I haven't learned how to use yet but intrigues me is the ability to designate one of your machines as an exit node. Now if I understand it correctly, I think it might allow you to treat TailScale as a traditional VPN, using one of the devices in your network to act as a relay to the internet. In the short time I've had to play with TailScale, I haven't had time to figure out how to test this feature, but if I understand it correctly, and I could be wrong, it sure sounds nifty. I hope I haven't made this sound overly complex because it really is super easy to install and configure TailScale. I made Ed do it while he was on the phone with me. I had it running in less than 10 minutes after I decided to give it a try. I got curious about how it works, and I hope you enjoyed knowing a little more about this free, magical technology. If you think you ever might want to access data on a device you've left behind or share a screen from a remote network, I highly recommend setting up TailScale now so it's ready for you when you need it. Magic DNS alone is worth the price of free, even when you're at home. Check out TailScale at TailScale.com. Well, after all that nerdiness, it's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me at allison at podfeet.com anytime you like. If you have a question or a suggestion or you've got an I'm still using it, please send it on over to that address. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet and I'm actually starting to use Mastodon a little bit, but uh, we'll get into that later it's really hard to explain. Anyway, if you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you could join our Slack community. Highly recommend that. podfeedcom slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show if you can afford it at Podfeet.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at Podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Frank wheels did. Finally, after a long absence, head on over to potfee.com live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocella Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.